Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is Sam Alexander with the news. On the community calendar, Center Street Drugstore will be offering flu booster shots this Saturday from 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. Mr. Keene, a second-generation dairy business owner, says he feels it's his duty to keep our town safe from illness. Those summer colds and flus are nothing to mess with. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside C.M. Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. (coughs) Sorry, I've had a cough lately. I don't know what it is. Oh, Uh, God! Anyway, what's up, concert readers? Well, today uh, we're going to be talking about part one of The Stand. I'm so excited. Yes, chapters one through 26, and we have C.M. leading the discussion. Take it away, C.M. Thanks, Josh. Before I take it away... I just want to acknowledge that this is our most requested book. By far. And, I, and it makes sense. Specifically this is... for that reason, I am terrified. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do a good job on this episode, and we're going to try our best. I want to give everyone the just the, a brief plot summary of the book. I'm sure anyone listening to this is familiar with The Stand. If they haven't read it, they've probably watched the miniseries. Everyone except for me. Except for Josh. So because of that, I know that some people may be listening to this and have no idea what we're talking about. So here we go. When a man escapes from a biological testing facility, he sets in motion a deadly domino effect, spreading a mutated strain of the flu that will wipe out 99% of humanity within a few weeks. The survivors who remain are scared, bewildered, and in need of a leader. Two emerge, Mother Abigail, the benevolent 108-year-old woman who urges them to build a community in Boulder, Colorado, and Randall Flagg, the dark man who delights in chaos and violence. And is the greatest villain in the history of literature. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, just going to throw that out there. <laughs> I stand by it. You stand by it? <laughs> <laughs> Suck it, Moriarty. <laughs> We're going to be talking about chapters 1 through 26. But the chapters jump back and forth between characters. So rather than us jumping back and forth in our discussion, instead, we're going to talk about the part one of this book for us, character by character. So if you're following Mm -hmm. along, just know that we're not going to take it beat by beat like it happens in the book. Perfect. So we kick things off with Charles Campion, a soldier who has the best worst luck ever. He's on an army base and something goes wrong. There's a breach. Then something goes even more wrong, and the safeguards that are supposed to keep that breach in check all fail. Campion manages to escape the army base with his wife and toddler, but what he does not escape is a weaponized strain of influenza known as Project Blue, which we'll get more info on later. So this section of the book, which isn't even chapter one, is titled The Circle Opens. So Campion's actions have set something into motion. Let's talk about what happens to this family. Right off the bat, this book is going 100 miles an hour. It's it's immediately puts you on edge reading this book. I was uh, so excited, like immediately. There's this part where... He, he's waking up and it, uh, his, his family and it's told from the, the point of view of his wife. Mm-hmm. He, she, she's not fully awake and she doesn't understand what's going on. And this is out of character for him. And the, there's a point where she finally wakes up and she's like, well, do I have time to, to pack a suitcase at least? And he stops and she says, uh, it, it, he looks like she so short circuited his brain because he's, He's going so fast that he hasn't had time to think these things through. And his response is, I don't know. I have to check the wind. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a cool, because we as readers also are completely in the dark. We don't know what's going on. And that is such an ominous thing to say. Yeah. I think, did she, at one point, she thinks that it might be a fire? Because yeah. Because she's like, why else would he be so panicked? But she follows luck because she is scared seeing him so scared so she does what he says grabs the stuff 
they get the baby, they get in the car, and they beat bricks. And it is the worst thing that could po- they possibly oh could have done. Oh my god, it's the worst <laughs> thing. It's so hard to believe that this starts with like just one dude. Yeah, what did you guys think about him reflecting on how he managed to get out? Because he's he's sort of confused about how that was possible for him. It's the worst because he thinks he's the luckiest person in the world. And we know that is not the case. He yeah. is the least lucky person to ever have existed. Yeah, he was in this this lab of some sort. And this light, this uh, this clock is green and suddenly it turns red. And we find out that as soon as this clock goes red, every door in this lab is supposed to slam shut forever. But it doesn't. He looks up and the doors are open just long enough for him to get out. And as tragic as it is, in a one-person story, if this story were about this guy, we would want to say, yeah, he got out. But that's not the book we're reading. (laughs) And it's like, shit, this guy should have died. It would have been better for the world (laughs) if this guy had died. Arguably one of the most important characters to this story to the story even being able to happen and we are not with him for more than a couple minutes. Yeah. Because the next time we see him, we are viewing him through the eyes of our first main character, Stu Redman. And what he sees is, is the sun reflecting off of the metal on the campion's car as it is driving towards them. Stu Redman. He, when we meet him, uh, we get, uh, you know, very King style. We get his like whole life story, uh, that's led him up to this point. And the entire time I was reading it, I thought that this was just another King character that I was we were going to spend a <laughs> chapter on and never see again. I was so positive. That is such a cool part of, uh, especially the early parts of this book, and especially this chapter. Stu Redman is just one of, what, six or so characters we meet in this small Texas town of Arnett. Uh, it's this run-down, dirt-poor town in Texas. And there are a bunch of these good old boys hanging out in front of uh, in front of a gas station, just drinking beer and shooting the shit. You're exactly right. We have we are given no indication which of these characters we're supposed to care about. Right. Or like not that we're supposed to care about, because they're all really interesting characters. Yeah. Any one of them could have easily branched off to be our main character. <laughs> and yeah, they're sitting at Bill Hapscomb's gas station. And there's, so we have, we meet Bill Hapscomb, Norm, Ralph, Hank, and Tommy. And like you said, Ben, they're all. And Vic. Vic. Was Vic oh, there? Yeah. Vic Palfrey? Not according to me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so it's, it's a group of men complaining about the state of the world. And Stu sees this car coming very slowly down the road, and that has started to occupy his attention. And he notices that the car is not driving normally. It's not going the right speed, and it's not staying in its lane. And he he sees the car, it's like it suddenly recognizes the gas station as some sort of outpost, and it starts to speed up. And he just so, so casually, he's like, Hap, might want to turn off your pumps. <laughs> you should uh, turn those off right now. And uh, like just it, he turns them off just in time and they all see this car just crash and tear through all of the gas pumps outside the gas station. And they all run out to try to help. And then that's when we see what's become of the Campion family. And it is tragic. The guy's delirious. Uh, they are pretty sure really quickly that the wife and child are dead and they do what they think to they what's best and that's to get them out of the car and call for an ambulance oh they're not just dead josh (laughs) yeah let's talk about how they are described (laughs) it is horrible what we come to know as the super flu or captain trips is they find them and they are covered in phlegm and mucus the glands in their neck are swollen to such a size that they've blackened and it describes as uh it's described as though they have an inner tube inflated in their neck so gross 
These guys are trying to help this family, well, the remaining survivor of this family. They work together to bring him into the gas station, get him com comfortable, call an ambulance. And the whole time, because I'm familiar with the book, I've read it, I've watched the miniseries, every time they touch him, mm -hmm. every time he phlegms or sneezes or coughs or does anything, my guts just went a little bit crazy. Kind of like in real life, every time I sneezed or somebody around me sneezed <laughs> while reading this book, it's going to happen for the rest of the book too. I'm like, yeah. oh God, we're all going to die. Well, that's the crazy thing. Cause I had the same thought of like, I know how contagious he is, but the crazy thing is it doesn't matter. You know, they, they're touching him. It doesn't matter. This super flu is so contagious. It is, what do they say? 99% transmittable. Yeah. So even if they had just like looked in the car for a brief second, they're all infected. Almost all of them. All right. So it's the next morning. And for some reason, we're with Norm. Racist Norm is racist. He's coming down with a cold. <laughs> Probably going to yep. die. Big loss there. Moving on. <laughs> Everyone else who was at the gas station is also coming down with something. And they're all kind of justifying it in their minds like, oh, you know, summer cold, whatever. Maybe mm -hmm. it's allergies. The only person who's really more concerned about it is Hap. And his cousin Joe, who is a patrolman, had stopped by the gas station to give him a bit of a warning. He also seems to have a cold. And later he pulls over a speeder on Highway 40, gives him a little bit more than a warning. <laughs> the town gets quarantined, and a caravan leaves Arnett with a bunch of the townspeople in it, Stu included. That was so awesome. Like, when it goes to, like, he is taking, like, an inventory of everybody who is is being taken out of town with him mm -hmm. and Stu pieces it together himself that these are the people i was with and most likely anybody they talked to or were around in the same day and it's crazy that in this caravan and the people that weren't even at the station that didn't come into contact with campion are already sick they're already sneezing and coughing. That's how quickly this disease spreads. And so, yeah, they're they're traveling and people are some are hysterical and being drugged by the soldiers <laughs> to calm down. <laughs> the soldiers that, mind you, are all over 50 and don't have wedding rings, as it's pointed out. So then we join Vic again, and he's dying. He, this has been a couple days because we've been Man. jumping around in the book. Yeah. Yeah, he is delirious. He is in containment, and he's coming in and out of delirium. And at one point, he realizes that the, the hospital door that he's looking at, the door to his room, is made of steel. When he comes to and he realizes just how many things are plugged into, run into, and just connected to him... Like, that is waking up on an alien ship, like, level of mm -hmm. insanity. And the automatic lights in his room change when it gets dark. And that's when he sees that there are people behind glass I had that are all just moment. staring at him. This was my Ben moment because I laughed. Because in my <laughs> head, I pictured it as this, like comedy scene where he screams because he sees all these faces. <laughs> and it's not funny at all. I don't. Uh, it'd be funny if it weren't so terrifying. Yeah. Kingism! <laughs> <laughs> but he is just like, he touches his hand to his head and he says like that he feels like he burned his hand on his head. He's like running so hot. And a doctor comes in and is basically like, oh yeah, he's dead. And like, he's like just leaves him. Yeah, they, they give him one more injection and the doctor makes a comment to another staff person that if this one doesn't work, we're going to lose him. So Stu is also in containment, but unlike Vic, he is not sick at all. Not a sneeze, not a throat tickle, nothing. But what he is, is really scared and starting to get really pissed off. Yeah. Um, this is where we start to get a sense of the real Stu Redman, I the think. The awesome real Stu yes. Redman. <laughs> because up till now, he's just been kind of a laid back, like... A uh, quiet dude. We mentioned his history. Let's just talk a little bit about what he's experienced in his life, what he's gone through. Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, at a very young age, his dad passed away. And so he started working mm -hmm. and his younger brother, uh, what was wrong with his younger brother? He got sick. 
his I believe his mom got sick. His mother got and, sick. Yeah, his younger brother was the one who made it out, but he only made it out of our net right. because Stu was kind of sacrificed his own life to work. Right. And uh so his his brother has gotten out and moved on. He stayed to take care of his mother and he just kind of resigned himself to living in this town. He got married, uh his wife tragically passed, and it's left him in a state of just living day to day. I think the importance of anything but day to day has dropped out of Stu for a mm. long time. The fight has been out of him. Until now. Until now. And now that he's in this, he he's we get the sense that he's very quick. He's very perceptive. He is able to read the situation very easily. Because when someone comes in to draw blood or get his no, to get his uh blood pressure. Blood pressure He's like, nah, <laughs> yep. yeah, nah. Uh, you need to send someone, and they're like, well, I we can't tell you. And he's like, I know you can't, but um, I'm not gonna do. I'm not gonna do what you want. And so, you obviously want something from me to get it. You're gonna have to send me someone. Maybe it'll take a few days. Who knows? But uh, you're gonna send someone that can tell me what's up, right? And he knows that the first person they send to him isn't gonna be the guy. <laughs> and sure enough. <laughs> The first guy they send to him, he's like, what can you tell me? And the guy's like, nothing. And he's like, not good enough, buddy. Uh, look, let's just move past this. You could, I'm going to hold out. You can either take these tests and everything by force, which I assume is going to mess up the validity of the stuff that you're taking well, yeah, from if me. Yeah, if they drug him. Right. Uh, so I, I'm done until you pass this up the food chain from you because you are clearly not somebody who's worth talking to about this. And the guy's like stunned. <laughs> and to kind of illustrate the power that Stu realizes very smartly that he has in this situation is that he comments, you can bring in guys to do this to me, but those suits don't look very thick. And yes. I'm going to do everything I can to puncture a hole in them when you come to do that. Yes, he's kind of a badass. So eventually after a presumably a couple of days again we're jumping around so it's kind of hard to tell how much time has passed for each character although this all occurs within a couple of weeks from mm, yeah campion getting out Stu gets to talk to deets and he finally gets some answers although not <laughs> not a lot of answers mainly what he already knew yeah that this is bad and that he seems to not be catching and that they don't think he's going to and they don't know why, which is the scary part. And everyone that he came in with is dead. They're, the most interesting part that happened in this exchange is when Stu does something to make Dietz feel how Stu feels, to make him feel that fear, to make him feel scared. And he does it and the, the way he does it is kind of cool because Dietz isn't mad about it. He's like, oh, okay, yeah, you put me in your place for a moment. So now I understand. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about what happens between them. Dietz has come in to talk to him. And at this point, he's not wearing the big hazmat suit. He has a, a filter in his nose, but that's it. Not enough, man. <laughs> not enough. I agree. He, he comes in and he's like, we don't think you're contagious. So, um, so I'm here to, to, be real with you and he does all this but he still doesn't really give Stu much information because it's all classified and when he goes to leave Stu sneezes <laughs> and Dietz flips the fuck out he does it on purpose yes he <laughs> leaps across the room and he's like clawing at the door and Stu's like hey man hey hey calm down I faked it. It wasn't real. <laughs> just wanted to fuck with you. And Deeds is just like, you motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, he has this moment of like, almost like grudging respect where he's like, hey man, uh, that sucked. I would That scared the shit out of me. <laughs> but hey, I, I, I get it. And later we get Deeds' notes on Stu, on, you know, his personality and character. What'd mm -hmm. you guys think of that? <laughs> like that. So it's, Stu and then Eva, the four-year-old, who are the only people at this point that have come in that have not died or gotten sick. And they call them prince and princess. Uh, spoiler alert, princess doesn't last much longer. Mm. But 
as he's talking about uh, about Stu, he basically says that uh, that Stu is somebody that as long as they like take care of that, he will cooperate. He'll be good. And we can only hope that we have enough time uh, that we can do this before it gets worse because their goal is to try to figure out what in Stu is killing this virus. What will not let the virus take hold, but they know they need way more time than they have. And so their best bet is to cooperate with this person and just try to make it as easy as possible. Oh, we forgot the most important part of this exchange. There's a hamster. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, John. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they, there's this one very brief where they show that there was, was it a hamster or a guinea pig? Guinea pig. Oh, how on the nose. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, that's very true. There's a guinea pig named Geraldo that has been in <laughs> sharing Stu's air and hasn't died. <laughs> They're just like, oh yeah, uh, the, the virus passes back and forth very easily between humans and guinea pigs. <laughs> this is never brought up again. It is not an important part of the story. It is just a very weird fact. Uh, and then this is the this is the first dream where it's, mm. uh, each mm-hmm. character as we go starts to have the same kind of dream. Stu falls asleep that night and he dreams about the open country and these cornfields and then these but these deep red eyes of something in the corn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys know what it means. I yes, have I no do. idea what oh it means. My gosh. The yeah. the dreams become a uh, a very important part uh I believe in the next part of our uh of our story. But so far uh in what we've read they're just these strange connections between a few of our survivors. I believe it's also after this this interaction that uh, we get a, a jump to not one of our main characters, but one of the nurses that's in this complex. And she says that she has to go take some some blood and she sneezes as she walks down the hall, which mm-hmm. means that this secure facility that we're in no longer secure. Although the nurse's actions do lead us to the state that Stu is in when we leave him for this part one of our episode He's some time has passed now. The nurse has infected this facility and there are probably other people who have infected it too or have been infected and come in and had no idea. So he's getting worried because things are changing around the hospital. The orderlies now wear guns and he's thinking to himself, do I need to plan an escape? Like what's going to happen here? That made me so jazzed that he's just like (laughs) start that thoughts of escape because they first they took him from texas to this facility in georgia Mm -hmm. then when that failed now he's in vermont so they're just shipping him around and he's slowly just starting to feel like a piece of meat he's even said when he was talking to deets i believe deets says i i hope you understand we can't tell you too much because right now you've disappeared no one in the world but us know where you are and if you knew too much and you stopped being of use, then maybe you stay disappeared. He is completely expendable. He could disappear yeah. at any point. While all of this has been going on with Stu, we are also learning about another main character, Franny Goldsmith. She is from Maine. And we start off with her on her way to the pier to meet up with her boyfriend, Jesse. And give him some unexpected news. And the news is that she's pregnant. Okay. Oh, sorry. I So I just read a note that I don't remember what it means, but I thought I would remember what it means. Hit us. It said, Franny and Jess. Jess is a 20-year-old poet. who uh, you, And you can tell he's a poet because he's wearing a blue chambray shirt. Uh, Franny is 19 and inspired Limp Biscuit. What? Uh, <laughs> is it? Is it because as she's walking to the pier, she's reflecting on what she must look like to other people walking? Like, she's a tall, good-looking college girl. Like, someone they'd write songs about. Right, but there was there was something specifically oh, that was written. That- she's walking to the pier, and she sees one of the, the townies, one of the locals, who, uh, like, charges out-of-towners to go to the beach. And uh, she raises her hand and waves and goes, ooh wow. <laughs> oh, that's, that's right. I remember that. 
<laughs> Wait, is that even the right band? I, no, no, it <laughs> no, is that's not. Just, it that's is damn it, not correct at all. <laughs> oh, we are. It, none of us are on our game. No. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, so Franny sees Jess out uh, on this pier and she sneaks up on him. Uh, she scares him. He bites his tongue. No, she bites oh, she, bite, she bites her tongue. And like she's sitting there bleeding and laughing. And then she's like, I'm pregnant. She goes about <laughs> things in such a way that... Okay. She really, like, just drops it on him. I want to talk about Franny as a character. Like, what her, her characteristics, what she's like. She's very privileged. This She is. Okay, this might be a, like, leftover from when I read this as a teenager. I hated her. I can't really? tell you why. Yeah? As a female, reading about her, I, I didn't like her. Didn't like mm. anything about her. I'm not feeling the same way this time around. Mm-hmm. But she does have a very nice privileged easy, yes. good life which is not her fault like good for her and it, it is partly how king writes women where uh all leading up before this all we've met is stew and and campion and we were not they're not really described at all uh physically we don't know what they look like but of course franny we immediately literally one of the first things we learn is how hot she is See, which I, is we've talked about this before i wanted yeah. to get like a Stu walked up in his tight jeans and it looked like he had a sock stuffed down in front of his pants. Yeah. And so, so yeah, like that part, eh, not great. But as a character, as we read about her, I love Franny. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's funny. She's kind of tough. She's like, doesn't give a shit. Um, she, she's fighting back. She ra- was raised in this good upper middle class family her mom is a lunatic but she's very old-fashioned uh but she she's constantly kind of fighting back against what's expected of her Mm -hmm. and uh only cares about what's what is good for her uh, but in a good way yeah uh i think she's really interesting and she puts a humorous spin on every encounter that we find her in so far i i like her it just She's so much more of a fully fleshed out character mm-hmm. than, say, um, what's her face from Salem's Lot, who I can't even remember her name now. Uh, <laughs> We're all just Sue. Sue? Yeah. Yeah. Sue, yeah. Sue. yeah. Sue Storm. Uh, <laughs> like, I can't even remember her deal, but Franny is, she feels like a real person. Yeah. I, I think that's awesome. I found what the note was. She says, Looky, looky, looky! Here comes Nookie, Miss College Girl, nineteen ninety. That is that is the nutshell description so, for how Franny looks. So that wasn't <laughs> worth all that time. <laughs> uh, I'm still I'm still kind of on the fence about Franny as far as how I feel about her. Like she, I, I, I'm not sure. I guess I'm not sure what she brings to the table yet. She tells Jesse she's pregnant. His reaction is not what she hoped for. And I'm not even sure she knew what she hoped for. Mm -hmm. But she's had time to think about this. He has had seconds. And I think, I feel like she a little bit unfairly expects him to react a way that he has not, he hasn't even had time to process this. Having said that, though, okay, guys, this is just for the guys. (laughs) Here's my pregnancy soapbox. From a woman's perspective, if your girlfriend, wife, friend, Whatever she is to you tells you that she's pregnant. Don't react the way Jesse did. Jesse sucks. (laughs) Unless you're actively trying or you've had that discussion about how you're both like, yeah, we're we're on board to have kids together whenever that happens. This person who's giving you this news is probably just as unhappy and scared about it as you are. And your shitty reaction is not helping things. All you need to do is say it's going to be okay. I support you. What would you like to do? Obviously, you're part of this. You can be part of the decision, but that doesn't matter right now. Fuck your ego and pride. It is all about her. Deal with it. You can have your moment later. Yeah. Yeah. Jesse sucks. Uh, <laughs> he's kind of a wiener. We already get hit. Her, her description of him is so great. I love you touched on it, uh, Josh, The that he has this feeling she looks at him and she thinks he knows 
the image that he is projecting. Mm-hmm. He he knows what he looks like, and he is trying very hard to look like the very deep poet. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just such a weenie. And uh, he nothing against people that ride a bike, but like. <laughs> Yeah, don't don't bash on bicyclists. <laughs> he, he rode his bike. He doesn't have a car, and she's like, I, "This guy's gonna be the father of my kid." <laughs> like walking up, she's already thinks like, "I think maybe I've fallen out of love with this guy." If I was ever in love, it to begin with, and that's good. Rough. Good call. Yeah, in my opinion. What's interesting, too, about Franny is that at this point, like as you're reading the book, and we haven't talked about all of them, but we have met a number of characters so far, Mm -hmm. and they all have this shadow of death hanging over them. But Franny is different. She's pregnant. She has this shadow of pregnancy, (laughs) of life hanging over her. And just while everyone else is experiencing this hardship, these trials of the super flu and what's happening to them and what's happening to the people around them, she is so like caught up and absorbed in her immediate world of mm. I am pregnant. What am I going to do? And I just thought that was it, it's kind of interesting to go back and forth between those two uh, very important but very different mm-hmm. life events. That's something I love about this book, especially in this beginning stages. As we go back and forth between all of our main characters, every character that could be their own book. There, I very easily could see an entire book of The Stand that is just about Stu's journey through mm-hmm. this super flu. I can see a completely different book that is just about uh, Franny and what it's like to experience the end of the world while bringing a child into the world it, and it would be a fascinating book <laughs> and then we just get all of them yeah and that's such <laughs> a cool thing and my note to remember that point was her super flu is the baby <laughs> 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 i've obviously never had kids <laughs> okay so next for franny we meet her dad he's pretty cool her he's dad is awesome her only good parent i would argue very fiercely <laughs> mm-hmm There's a really cool, um, with a few of our characters, we get a few parental relationships. And every one of them is fascinating. They're written so well. And except maybe Fran's mom, they are so believable. They are so human. Uh, The relationship between Fran and her dad is so precious and Mm -hmm. like loving and wonderful and she tells him that she's pregnant and what she's worried about at this moment isn't even okay what am i going to do where am i going to stay how am i going to take care of this it's if he still likes her as a person if he's disappointed in her Mm -hmm. which is a very natural reaction like this is uh, they later in their conversation talk about how her parents each had a kid she like she was her father's and her younger brother who passed away was his mother's like they had each parent had them that they were their favorites Mm -hmm. and so her connection with her dad is so much more important to her and so that is where she pretty much knows what her mom's gonna do because her mom is all about maintaining an image and trying to project perfection very conservative old world views yeah Yeah, and they talk a lot about what her mom used to be like, which was a lot like Franny, as she is now, and that losing her son destroyed her. And this part, oh man, this kind of blew my mind a little bit because they talk about abortion. They talk about pro-life, pro-choice. And I'm big surprise, Mm pro-choice. But the point that her dad makes, I just want to share because it's the most compelling pro-life argument that I've ever heard. And it didn't change my stance, Mm -hmm. but it like opened up this larger world for me to understand how someone could be so passionate Mm -hmm. about the opposite position. Completely agree. Her brother was killed by a drunk driver in an accident and he hung on for like seven days so their family had to watch him die and suffer and it was terrible and so her dad tells her that 
Franny's mother would argue against abortion from a moral stance and that the right to life biddies hold up their pictures of babies drowned in salt, arms and legs scraped out onto a steel table. And he's like, so what? The end of life is never pretty. He just sees his son lying there, destroyed inside, ruined, pasted over with bandages. And he says, life is cheap and abortion makes it cheaper. Yeah, it's it's such a fascinating bit of writing because I I also being very pro-choice going into this conversation in this book I was like ugh this is going to be such a this is going to be gross this is going to be just a weird argument but it's so passionate and heartfelt and real and the way King writes it is fascinating because King as we know at least in nowadays is a fairly a liberal person, Mm -hmm. I would say. And that he was able to think of this argument and and write it so eloquently Mm -hmm. is really fascinating. Really beautiful piece of writing. It's a very respectful conversation. Because he's also saying, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. I can only tell you, I'm an old man who feels how he feels and nothing's going to change that. This is how I feel but you're going to need to do what makes the best thing for your life because you have to live with the choice you made. Yeah. Yeah, He's not trying to control her or convince her. He's just explaining. I see this now in terms of my dead son and it has changed me. It's like, well, yeah, of course, all of our life experiences lead us to feel strongly one way or the other about something. Yeah. And to have that presented with such grace was like, it was just this beautiful moment. Really amazing piece of writing. So Franny goes to tell her mom. Her mom, who is a psychopath. Holy yes. shit. Yes. And before she does this, we are given insight into Franny's parents, her family, how it functions mm-hmm. in terms of their house and their respective rooms. We don't have to talk a lot about it, but I just thought it was kind of neat. Yeah. I would just The important thing is that her mom's got the parlor and it's like pretty much roped off mm-hmm. and it's like pristine like a like a museum yes uh you are not allowed to touch anything and um yeah she views it through her past of uh looking back as a little kid in her father's workshop and it was a place of happiness and imagination and then the parlor was a place of punishment yeah, Franny got, she got hurt herself and she was little. She walked in with a bloody nose. And the first thing her mom said was, get, get out. out. And, she, and her mom's, <laughs> yep. yeah, and her mom's friend when there was there and Franny even remembers like, even my mom's friend was like, jeez. <laughs> so that very accurately describes her relationship with her mother who has like the worst reaction. She is very much that Stephen King character that we talk about so often that drives us crazy. We mm-hmm. hate to spend time with, especially following this beautiful exchange, the supporting loving thing mm-hmm. between her and her father. So her mom gets slapped. Um, yeah. Holy every- shit. Yeah, Everyone gets slapped. Everyone. Well, there are three, <laughs> uh, just in the Franny chapters, three instances of women slapping. So it was yeah. funny because Jesse, we didn't talk about this, but Jesse slaps Franny. Yeah. And that. Because he sucks. Yeah, that pissed me off. But when Fred slapped Carla, those are her parents, yes. I was like, yeah, punch the bitch. <laughs> I, was so, I was so happy. Yeah. So the, the, re- like, uh, the reason that I think that reaction is so different is also because her dad basically says, I'm staying out of this. The conversation you have with your mother is between you and your mother, and you're going to have to deal with that on your own. But when we get to this conversation, her mom calls her a bad girl, like she's talking to a dog. It's yeah. so and, horrible. Like, tears into her, and it's brutal. And then her dad stands in the doorway, just kind of observing for a minute. And then finally, it's just too much. And like, it's it, he just like, like hitting the reset button, except the reset button's her face. <laughs> <laughs> so the last we hear from Franny in this part one, she's in a hotel and she's writing a friend about everything that's happening. Not about the flu. Again, this is all about what's going on with her and her family. She gets a call from her dad. Something's wrong with her mom. What a tragedy that her mom is sick. Well, it is actually because like. I know. You're going to get all. <laughs> well, her mother is a lunatic, but she's also she's pushed past her limit. She her, 
the death of her son, which was years ago, but it really broke her. And she's tried to fill her life with all of this like social work. And like she's member of the historical uh, society and the genealogical club and like a million clubs. And she's constantly going. She's just stressed herself so much that this was the thing that pushed her over the edge. And her dad says she'll come around. Like she, this is, this was horrible. It was inexcusable of her. One day she will come around. But right now there's this horrible pain between the the two of them, between Franny and her mother. And she gets the news that her mom is what we know, deathly sick. Mm -hmm. And she has this feeling. She says, uh, bitterness or pain is like a pie. You have to eat, you know, sure. Maybe her breakdown was part her, her brother dying part, all of the stress, but a good portion of it was hers. And it, it's, it's tragic. I just think that kid was spared having a shitty grandma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, she, she sucks. Oh, and for sure. We will be better off without her. But right. like, she's still, right. it's, it's a testament to how human uh, King makes all of these characters. Right. Well, they, even this horrible person, I'm still like, they, there's reasoning for yeah. it. The thing that I felt like the most, like the lowest part about this, because as we're jumping from character to character, we're jumping across the country mm. and each area is its own rate at which this is happening. Like it's slower for some other places. It's faster. As far as Franny's story, we haven't felt too much of that. Mm-hmm. But when they finally call an ambulance to come get her mom, she's loaded into an ambulance with six other people, mm-hmm. which just shows you. How even though she's in this small kind of isolated place, it's coming for her just like everybody else. Let's meet another cool mom, <laughs> an actual <laughs> cool mom. This would be Larry Underwood's mom. So first we're going to meet Larry. He's returning home with his tail between his legs. He was trying to make it as a musician, kind of was making yeah, it. Yeah, arguably got, made it. Yeah, I got sucked into that world of like sex, drugs, rock and roll sort of stereotypical mm-hmm. thing we all hear about and has a sort of friend just a guy kind enough to open his eyes and say, these people are using you. You are on a spiral. It's out of control. Get out now. Save yourself, essentially. So he does that by returning home to mom. Larry is so cool. I love Larry. What do you guys think? I, I was not sure about Larry. So in, we, we go through a while of his partying and everything, and that's mm-hmm. fine. But he's... Uh, when we meet him before he's reflecting on this, he's parked in his truck or in his car uh, outside his mom's apartment building because it's like super early in the morning and he wakes up to his mom like knocking on the glass and she's just like coming in and make you breakfast. Alice Underwood doesn't give a fuck. No. I like Alice. I hate Larry. Really? Really? He is so horrible and he's, annoying and whiny and he's yes. such a user. He is a yes. bad person. He is. Okay. This is <laughs> okay, okay. I, yes. my feelings about Larry are influenced by the, you know, four or five times I've read this book. <laughs> right. And I know his whole journey. And he, I, looking forward, he has the, my favorite character arc yeah. in the book. Well, that's exciting. Uh, but yes, when we meet him now, he is a shithead. Right. And sh- there's even something that uh, I assumed was a bit of foreshadowing is that his mother basically says that, the only thing that could ever change Larry is some god awful catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he has steel in him, and he calls upon that steel, and sometimes to the detriment of everyone around him. So she's kind of saying, like, I know he's basically going to be okay no matter what, as long as he can call upon that thing inside of him, that kind of cruel, thoughtless mm-hmm. thing. He's uh, like biting on tinfoil. Uh, yeah. Someone says of him. So we find out shortly after meeting Larry, that he ain't no nice guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is another, he wakes up in a strange woman with a thick Brooklyn accent. Uh, A dental hygienist. (laughs) Yeah. And she's trying to make him breakfast, guys. Yeah, she seems like a real sweetheart. But he's like, oh, I should have called my mom. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he should have. He was staying with his mother and didn't call. He he sends just skips out on this woman and she throws a spatula at his head 
yes. and cuts him with a spatula. <laughs> I love that. And then she's throwing things out the window as he's fleeing down the sidewalk, it's, screaming, you ain't no nice guy. It, is, <laughs> it was lovely. Very cartoonish and just another part I love about Larry's story. L- Larry seems to just have no self-referential like point to himself. Like he... I don't know. He just doesn't seem to understand he's, his own life. He's selfish. He yeah. doesn't mind. He doesn't care about his actions effect on everyone else. He only cares. Ah, uh, I should have called my mom. Now she's going to be mad at me. So yeah. now I have to run out on this girl because it, it's. Just, I need yeah. to go visit my mom at yeah. work and apologize. He's, he's just a selfish yeah, and he shows up to his mom's work and kind of sees her in her job. And the sense that I got was that he was either, maybe it's a combination of being embarrassed and pitying her because she's kind of got a this hard life. But she does not need <laughs> anything from nope. him. And she knows exactly what she's doing and is all about. Yeah, I, I saw it a different way because he keeps saying that like, when he came home, he he expected his mom to have shrunk. He expected her size in his head to be to be smaller and him to have grown. But as soon as he's come back, he says, "No, it's the exact opposite." He feels like a child. Yeah, he's around small her. and she's large, and she has retained this strength and uh, and just is everything. And his relationship is so well written as well because he talks about how his her love is expressed mm-hmm. she left him a note when he, the day after he came home that he it didn't say dear larry it didn't say love mom it just said i got food it was all yeah. his favorite food and though. it was all of his favorite food and that was so touching mm-hmm. alice underwood uh is just such an exceptional character i i love her Unfortunately, Alice gets sick, and we leave Larry as he is frantically trying to call the hospital, trying to get help for his mom, and at this point in the story, everything is falling into chaos. So he's finding that the hospital lines are busy, the ambulances are busy. And he's just stuck, picking his mom up off the floor, and with no idea what to do. He's never been able to handle a crisis by himself before. Next, we meet Nick Andros, who is one of my favorite characters. He is described as a deaf mute, and he's mugged by some good old boys. He's nearly killed. Like, th- mm-hmm. this oh, escalated yeah. so quickly. And uh, they, they almost kill him because he fights back too hard. And she can't yeah. have that. And I don't know if they, at this point, if they knew that he couldn't speak and couldn't hear. Because they're trying to talk to him and stuff. And mm-hmm. we're kind of getting snippets as he's... Either, you know, his head's rocked back from a punch and he's, you know, lost track of their mouth and what they were saying. And I thought that was really interesting. But so he wakes up in a jail cell and he's got bruises all over his body, probably broken ribs. Uh, Um, His his front teeth teeth are are broken in. Yeah, they're like his front teeth were shattered. He's in a lot of pain. And he meets Sheriff John Baker, who's a pretty cool dude. And he's willing to go after these guys, even though one of them is his brother-in-law. That... That revelation was really exciting to find out that that was his brother-in-law. I think this Nick Andros's story is if the book focused on one character for the whole book, I think Nick would be the one I would want. Yeah. Because this storyline of going after these guys that beat the shit out of him is just really exciting. It's It would be a really interesting crime book. Of him him becoming buddies and eventually deputy in this small town that he was just uh, wandering through. Yeah. And so he writes out his life story very briefly for Sheriff Baker. And, you know, that's when we find out Nick is this thoughtful, intelligent person who's had a really rough life and has risen above so many challenges with the help of a few key important people in his life. Uh, we he, we also meet Baker's wife, Jane, who is also very warm and welcoming to Nick, even though she knows that 
her brother is going to be in some hot water. <laughs> I want to say because of Nick, but it's actually because of his own actions. <laughs> right, yeah. But, you know, in a small town like that, you would expect her to place that blame on Nick. Mm-hmm. And she does not at all. So our time with Nick is spent initially with him and Baker working together. They start bringing these guys in. The main perpetrator gets wind of it. He takes off so we don't get him. But we have a couple guys in the jail cell with them. And unfortunately, Sheriff Baker starts to get sick. And he does sort of deputize Nick. And so Nick is now caring for the people who nearly took his life. Can we talk about there's a, there's a scene where the local doctor, Ambrose Soames, Soames comes in to check on Nick because uh, he's beaten to hell. And I this is also why I want this to be its own book is I love every character in the, <laughs> the Nick chapters. Yeah. Sheriff Baker is such a, he's just so good hearted and immediately trusts Nick Mm -hmm. and puts so much faith in him. Uh, Dr. Soames and Baker have this one short scene, but it's hysterical. It's just. I loved, I did laugh out loud. Yes. (laughs) Where they're just like bantering, like they're two old friends. Yeah. And. Uh, Dr. Soames is giving Baker a hard time about his man tits. And <laughs> yeah, he's, he's like, hey, I'll lock you up. It's just such a, I love all of these characters. The relationship, you get such a, a good feeling about the relationship between Sheriff Baker and his wife is you can just feel how loving they are and how they start to take Nick in as one of their own. And that's how I knew something bad was going to happen to all of them. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely a town I wish we could have spent more time in, spent more time with these townspeople. Unfortunately, so many people there die very quickly while we're with Nick, um, including, well, Sheriff Baker dies and then Jane gets sick. And, and it happens fast. Very fast. And Nick does his best to make her comfortable and to care for her and basically be her companion while she dies, which is... So great for her and just so tragic for Nick. So he, she dies. He finally lets out his last living remaining prisoner, one of the guys who beat him up. And he makes the rounds and he's going house to house trying to figure out, is anybody alive? And that is where we leave Nick. What, what did you guys think about that segment? This is the first point in the book where we get the sense of the scope and the speed. Of the disease. The speed is what really blew my mind. Yeah. And that how quickly, not only the speed that this virus is attacking people, but the speed with which the government is blocking off towns. They mentioned that there was people disguised as road crew, but had rifles in their car that were blocking up the exits to the town. And in the morning, he notices that there are people who probably like were sneaking out during the night. And the town is just, he has to break into two different places because the businesses aren't open, but he knows no one's around. So he breaks in. He almost has to shoot a dog too because nobody's fed the dogs in the town and they almost attack him. So like this town, once it started, it just crumbles over the course of two days. Two days. Right. So we just have a few more characters to meet. Uh, Poke and Lloyd who are horrible. They're like on this killing spree, (laughs) robbing, killing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Lloyd, Poke dies. They get into a gunfight. Yeah at a gas station and Lloyd ends up in jail. He gets this attorney, this young lawyer who was not taking any of his shit. And I was like, refreshing. Yeah, that lawyer's <laughs> awesome. Despite the fact that he's a giant scumbag, but he's awesome. And he seems to have a cold. So uh, uh, who knows yeah. how that's going to work out for Lloyd. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, the, these two chapters are really interesting. <laughs> Lloyd is such an annoying piece of shit. Yeah. He's a dumbass it's they're they're blazed out of their mind going on this killing spree and like it doesn't even register and it's across like four states so it's federal yeah like all of these stakes they and don't they even just know not when care. they pass from state to state nope they're just two horrible dumb guys <laughs> and, uh, i i was very happy when poke died because he kept yelling whoop whoop that yeah. is the part of the audio book that nearly drove me insane uh, it is the kingest uh, yeah very trying king. to have a catchphrase <laughs> I was so glad when he got shot in the head. I was like, God, if I had to listen to this idiot for two more chapters. And uh, yeah, the the whole thing with the lawyer is really cool. And saying, you're going to be on death row in two weeks. Yep. 
but we know that that's not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I'm reading it, like I, I've never read this. So sometimes I forget things and I'm like, oh man, him on death row is going to be crazy. But all right, I guess we'll see what happens to him in two weeks. <gasps> Wait in two weeks. <laughs> like it dawned on me all at once. You could kind of say that the rest of the world is on death row. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> you, okay. you could say that, could, but we won't. <laughs> um, we, we are going to wrap up this episode by talking about the last major person that we meet. And then we are going to talk about how this flu spread. Let's talk about the walking man. Randall motherfucking flag. Dude, I'm so excited because I love the Dark Tower series and I remember hearing that this he's supposed to be the same guy. And so now like I forgot about it and then I started reading it and I was like, oh, right. I forgot. I'm so excited. And the, the walking dude, like the way they just describe him is so badass that like, he only travels at night. And like, if he sees cars coming, he'll go down in like the little ditch. But as the cars pass him, they'll all be, everybody in the car would feel like yeah. they just went through something terrible. <laughs> <laughs> like he exudes this aura of, of awfulness and violence and it just he talks about being parts of riots and he's known all over the country with uh different aliases and uh his his jacket is uh full of pamphlets for every fringe group imaginable and he just spreads malevolence and let and what happens when when these groups get busted by the police? He talks about how he was part of the Patty Hearst kidnapping and that the day that they got busted, an hour before the cops came, he just left, walked out. And when the cops asked, all they could say is maybe there was one other person, possibly someone important. They couldn't describe. It was very like vague memories. Like Not that people were trying to protect him, but he... He leaves, and the impression of him kind of goes with him. He becomes dim. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. It's so cool. And, and so fucking cool. Of, and it's like all of this buildup, all these insane, terrible things. And then he's like, the world must be ending because I can do fucking magic now. Yeah. And then he levitates. And that's all we get. That's it's it. like, wouldn't we no more? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited about Randall Flagg. <laughs> We're going to get to talk about him a lot more. <laughs> oh, thank God. That, that's all the characters that we meet. But I want to talk about what actually might be my favorite part of the entire book. There are these chapters interspersed throughout that are reminiscent of uh, back when we read Salem's Lot. There were these chapters that were the town. Mm -hmm. It was the vampires spreading. And there are these chapters throughout where it's just uh, the first one is Joe Bob, the the cop from yeah, Hap's Arnett, cousin. Uh, pulling a family over and spreading it to them. And then the family heading a state over and stopping at a diner and it infecting everyone there. And then one person from the diner and it just following the network mm -hmm. of this disease. It made me nauseous every time. I don't know why, but I like it just it that pit in my stomach as like they the guy asked him for directions and he gave him back a death warrant. Like, yeah. Fuck. And that's why every every time somebody like sneezed or coughed, I was just like, fuck, just another person. It's one more down, even though I know so many people are going to die. I keep hoping. But those the webs are so cool. And scary because there's nothing they can do about it. There's uh, the the army is trying to contain this, but it's so obvious from so early on. Nah, damage been done. Yeah, in the very early on in the book, we get a little excerpt from uh, the army base, and yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about that because we kind of come back to that a few times. Mm -hmm. Starkey and Creighton, uh, basically the guy that's in charge of Project Blue. Yeah, he uh, the first time we meet him, he's staring at monitors of what's of all the dead people in the lab in the base, specifically the guy whose face is in his soup, because that's where he died. And it's just like fucking with him. And he's who we find out that Stu is not affected. He's the one who tells us 
that uh, the head of the project killed himself as soon as it went out. And they they address that everything that they're doing is just not good enough. Everything every time they think they've got it, it's just not happening for them. And he finds out about press really like the press is getting wind of stuff. And he is the one who is issuing the okay. The press were there. Make sure they don't leave that town alive mm-hmm. because he's making these hard calls while doing, doing a bunch of downers. Yes. So many downers. <laughs> and he, then we also find out that not only is Stu not getting infected with it, he's the one who tells us that they injected him directly with the yes. virus <laughs> and his body killed it. And they don't know why. As soon as I read that, I was like, I'm so naive. Like, of course they did. <laughs> <laughs> he's also, we find out, that after he's done, he's made all these hard decisions because in his heart of heart, he knows that he's just going to keep making these hard calls because they're going to replace. They're going to take him out anyway. So he does all this and he finally finds out that he's being relieved of his command. And instead of just leaving, he goes down into the lab and exposes himself intentionally. He reads all the flyers on the bulletin board and he cleans up the guy who is in the soup. Yeah, takes his face out of the soup. <laughs> yeah. And the the sign, like there's a, somebody, a dead body with a sign around its neck. And he goes over and he lifts up the body's head and he hears the eyes roll back in its skull, which also made my stomach drop. <laughs> but the sign says something to the effect of, now you know it works. Any questions? Oh. <sighs> And he takes that guy's gun and blows his brains out in the lab. All of this is not before maybe the scariest thing that happens in the book. Uh, if you guys caught on to this, when he gets replaced, the the guy, his his uh, underling that's been coming in to check on him throughout the book is saying, you've been fired, I'm your replacement. And this general says, okay, that's that's fine, I knew it was coming. But you, this is on you now. Contact this guy. He gives him a name. And all you have to do is say, Rome has fallen. And what that is, is he has operatives, CIA or whatever operatives, in Russia, in China, and throughout Europe that he has mailed vials of the super flu to. So far, the virus has only spread throughout America, and he, I think they say it's spread to one or two European countries. And that's part of why they're they're trying to keep the media under wraps too, mm-hmm. because they don't want to admit that, that it's America. Yeah, exactly. But to keep it under wraps, instead of just saying, "Hey, we're a lost cause," this fucking guy says, "Give as good as you get," or something. Yeah, that's so horrible. It is the most fucked up thing in the entire book because if it weren't for that but it is possible not likely but possible it could have been quarantined maybe the other side of the world could have gotten under control yeah. if not for this guy they would at least would have up had in the time, first place you know because it's in the air so like it's <laughs> we all share the same air whether <laughs> whether it's you know me now and them like months later but it, it eventually probably would have happened, but maybe they could have prepared for it or continued research. They could have shipped stew somewhere overseas to mm. continue the research. And yeah, he, he makes an interesting decision. Um, I want to mention too, while all of this is going on with Starkey ending his post, we have snippets of different media outlets like uh, TV reporters and broadcasters, people on the radio realizing what has happened and they're trying to get this information out and they are just straight up being slaughtered and it's it's so sad and that leads us to the final chapter of of what we read for today uh this chapter that is one of these countrywide chapters where it is not the spread of the flu but the spread of the knowledge of the flu there are so many amazing things like in L.A., the there are workers secretly sending out flyers. Uh, there are news outlets that are, are trying to broadcast the truth. There are a couple times other characters will see newscasts and they notice something funny about them, but they can't quite put their finger on it. Mm-hmm. And it's because in these news stations, there are people they're monitoring them. 
Um, there's a radio show host that locks his doors and goes live. He cuts the delay and he tells people to talk about everything you've heard, what you've seen and get all that out there. The government comes in and slaughters him. The guy who shoots the radio host, his soldiers turn on him. So now you have people, you have more infighting because people are making decisions and people are also standing up for what they believe in. Uh, the most crazy thing to me well i guess second most crazy thing was the live executions that was like like yes. a game yeah. show like just rat pulling out people's names and shooting them made me think of the running man this, <laughs> yeah it totally did oh the, this whole chapter takes place over the course of a few days and it's just the entire society falling apart totally going from just a coup in a radio station to literally an entire TV network has been taken over by militants who are doing live executions on the air. The most crazy thing, though, was the president's speech <laughs> telling everybody you're overreacting. And as he starts to as he's giving his speech, sneezing and coughing throughout his speech. Well, that is it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please join us in our next episode as we will discuss chapters 27 through 44. For Benjamin Graham and CM Alexander, I'm Joshua Kahn, reminding you that love is the only thing which allows men and women to stand in a world where gravity always seems to want to pull them down. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. We hope you enjoyed part one of The Stand. We sure did. Before I let you go, I want to remind you that we'll be releasing bonus content on our Patreon page once we meet our monthly goal. We already have a few episodes of this new material recorded, and we're really excited to share it with you guys. Thanks to everyone who gave us a rating and review on iTunes recently. By doing that, you're helping us out more than you know. Without those reviews, we sort of disappear into the iTunes void. As always, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dairy Public Radio and Twitter at Dairy Public. If you're following us on social media, you may have heard that we now have a website thanks to collaboration with the awesome folks at constantreaders.org. Check out our new website. It's all amazing Stephen King stuff, and in the coming months we'll be adding our unique DPR voice and content to make it our own. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye. <laughs>